Stories Bigger Than Texas, the Alamo podcast. The Alamo defenders came from all over. In modern day terms, they represented 23 states and seven different countries. So it's no wonder you can find pieces of the Alamo story all over the world. Today, we reveal the little known connections to the Alamo from the woods of Bastrop, Texas, to a storied newspaper office in Chicago, the fields of England and Germany, even a battle site in Japan. I'm your host, Emily Balkum. We're joined by Thomas Ledesma, a researcher here at the Alamo. Thomas, thank you so much for joining us. Yeah, it's my pleasure, Emily. Thank you for having me on. Let's start with describing your role as a researcher. I've been on tours with you when you are describing artifacts and realize you've hit upon that light bulb moment when you see a visitor really forming their own personal connection to the Alamo. Your eyes light up and it's something you really enjoy. Yes, that's true. That's it's, uh, interesting that you can see that from uh, following along. History can be a very hard subject for a lot of folks, um, especially youngsters. And even we have adults coming back with their kids on field trips and to tell the story and see that connection and they're saying, oh, this isn't boring, this isn't difficult. And I'm also a part of this story is, is really important, I think, to everybody who works in the public history realm. And for me, I, I really enjoy being able to see that happening. Now to set the stage, how did the Alamo's diverse group of defenders from so many different states and countries come together and form a sense of unity and purpose during the siege? Are there historical accounts or personal narratives of their camaraderie? We do have some firsthand accounts coming in the form of letters that people are writing back home. And one of those letters comes from a young man named Daniel Cloud, and he was 22 years old from Kentucky, and he ends up enlisting in what is popularly known as the Tennessee Mounted Volunteers uh, under the command of William B. Harrison, also known as the Crockett Volunteers. And he writes a letter to his brother, and he's talking about why the men are here. He mentions that it's you know, the land is fertile and great for gardening, and the possibilities for that kind of endeavor are very high. But he goes into a more detailed and more visceral description of why they're here, and they're willing to fight. He writes here, the cause of philanthropy, of humanity, of liberty, and human happiness throughout the world calls loudly on every man who can to aid Texas. He finishes, if we succeed, the country is ours. It is immense in extent and fertile in its soil and will amply reward all our toils. If we fail, death in the cause of liberty and humanity is not cause for shuddering. Our rifles are by our sides and choice guns they are. Those are some pretty heavy words. They are. And just like any other thing throughout history, Everybody has a different reason on why they're coming here. But that March 6th morning, you can guess that conversations would have been had. You know, we talk about a line in the sand being drawn, whether figuratively or actually that happens. You know the men are coming here saying, looking to their left and right, and knowing that's what they're fighting for as well. So there's a diverse group of reasons why the defenders end up here in 1836 on that morning. But I think during that day, they're here for each other. And uniting around a common cause. Sure, and that cause is, is the, of liberty and humanity. And sacrificing for that is, is not a cause for shuddering, as Daniel Cloud says. Well, you've done some remarkable research just for this podcast, and we are so fortunate and grateful for that. When you talk about little-known connections to the Alamo, you have to start with Texas. It just makes sense. So take us about 90 miles away to Bastrop, Texas. Yeah, so... The beautiful town of Bastrop, formerly known as Mina, has been around for quite a while. There's a small Spanish outpost there early on, kind of guarding that area of north or northern hill country. 
And later on, it's a site for several colonies, both under the Mexican government and later on uh, the Texian government. We know that the Alamo kind of gets this big uptick in the 1840s, around 1845 to 1850, when the U.S. Army shows up. And there's a great debate on where should this army installation be. Its purpose is going to be mainly quartermaster depot, so supplies and logistical purposes, and where to put that. The army's looking for several sites, and eventually they sit on the Alamo. And one of the reasons why is because the U.S. Army figures, well, it was used as a fortress. So it, it was government property. And so that transfers over to the United States from Texas. When they really start digging into the paperwork, they realize that the Catholic Church still owns the building. And so now they have to go approach the Catholic Church and ask if they can rent it out. Of course, it's not being used as a church anymore. We still have remnants of the lawn barracks there. And it's in the middle of the town or right on the outskirts at that point. But it's a good central hub that they can move material and men in and out. So they get the rights to use that building. Now, you have the Alamo in 1850 or so. No roof, no second floor, no windows, no doors, at least shutter-wise. And so they have to find a way that they can make this suitable to store the materials. Look around San Antonio, and you see big live oak trees, which have really gnarly. We have one on site, right? Big gnarly branches, not really straight lumber. It's kind of hard to build with that. Well, if you go 90 miles north, you find Bastrop and the Tall Pines. And you look it up today on your computer, you see the Lost Pines region, and the Army says that's where we're going to get our lumber. And so they do. They go ahead and harvest a bunch of lumber, approximately 24,000 feet. In this project, 442,000 shingles alone to roof these structures. That's incredible. Yeah. And so they go ahead and mill the lumber in Bastrop and end up bringing it down to San Antonio to put the first roof on the Alamo Church. That's quite a feat, too, of just engineering and transportation to get it here. Oh, yeah. Another Texas connection you found is out in El Paso, specifically at Fort Bliss. Yeah. So, again, this uptick of the U.S. Army activity after the Mexican-American War really will spur on this Western expansion. Of course, the war ends in 1849, and we see the United States now taking over this vast space between really Texas and California, everything in between. And so to secure those areas that they've now received, they have to go ahead and put outposts throughout the West, and one of them is naturally going to be El Paso. And so they have soldiers coming from the East Coast or right above Texas, some coming through Missouri and Louisiana, and they all have to stop here in San Antonio. And they get outfitted, they get materials, and then they're sent west. And the specific group that goes there first is going to be the 3rd Infantry. And it's about 260 men that set out, and they arrive in September of 1849, and they occupy several locations throughout what is now downtown El Paso. And over time, orders change, personnel changes occur, and it won't be until about 1854 that the Army says, we need a, a true permanent installation here. And so they go ahead and establish the quarters that they're going to call Fort Bliss. And that's going to be named after Lieutenant Colonel William Wallace Smith Bliss, who served in the Mexican-American War under General Zachary Taylor. And he's also a son-in-law. So that's a pretty interesting connection there between those two. Then zooming out to the rest of the United States, there are monuments dotted around a couple of states. Let's start with Kentucky, the home of 14 Alamo defenders. Yeah, so here we have Kentucky. Like you mentioned, 14 defenders. Um, one of them being Jim Bowie himself, which is pretty awesome. And this can also go out to a call to everybody in the general public. If you know of a place where you're living or you visited and you see a monument to an Alamo defender or the Texas Revolution, let us know. Because it's really interesting to find out how these small local places uh, 
in their individual states are honoring the sacrifice that happened here in 1836 and in some of the other uh, combat that happens during the Revolution. But while traveling through Frankfort in Franklin County, Kentucky, you'll come across the Kentucky State Mount, which in 1847 was created as the official military cemetery and burial, burial ground for other distinguished Kentuckians. And while you're walking throughout the grounds there, you'll notice that there are markers of several different episodes in history, one of them being uh, the Texas Revolution, and specifically notes the Battle of the Alamo on there and the men that uh, died in the battle. You've also researched two defender monuments in Pennsylvania, the home of 15 Alamo defenders. That's right. And I'd like to give a, a shout out to the good folks at the Mifflin County Historical Society. We had some folks coming through the new Ralston Family Collection Center, and they had a few questions about individuals that were from their area in Pennsylvania. And so that kind of opened up the door to doing more research on those uh, individuals. And they were very excited to send me uh, photos of those monuments. And they're beautiful. Most of them are done after the fact, but some of them several years after the battle, uh, when other individuals in the families passed on, they thought, well, we can also commemorate our relatives that had perished uh, in the Battle of the Alamo. So very interesting to find that. How cool is that, that a visit to our brand new Ralston Family Collection Center, the Alamo exhibit there, it sparked something we didn't know about and you were able to do more research. Yeah, it's fascinating. And some of those men that are in those monuments, they pass along and some of their younger brothers decided to see what made Texas so interesting and, and that gravity to pull that, their older siblings in. And so they too found themselves in the service of Texas later on. So a whole lot of bunch of stories there that we can go ahead and get into. There's also a defender monument in Rhode Island, home to one Alamo defender. That's right. As I like to say, it's a small state with big history. Um, that one Alamo defender from Rhode Island is Albert Martin. And if you're going through Providence, the capital of Rhode Island, you'll find the North Burial Ground, which in its own right is a pretty significant historic place. Um, it began in about 1700, and it encompasses about 110 acres and has more than 40,000 graves um, from 1700 all to today, the modern time. Um, it's a peaceful location hidden within the bustling city down there, and you see all kinds of monuments covering all kinds of conflicts and, and different things. And in the back corner, you saw, you saw this sort of brown color obelisk covered in moss and lichen, and you go up there and it says, Albert Martin, Alamo, San Antonio. And luckily enough, this about in June, I had the opportunity to actually go there and see it. And it was really powerful to go ahead and see that monument so far away from San Antonio. And we were lucky enough to have great help from the manager of the cemetery there to help find where it was. You can imagine trying to wander around 110 acres to find it. Uh, it was pretty difficult, but we did. And she was, even went as far as finding the logbooks, trying to see who paid for it. Um, when they deeded the land for that um, site, unfortunately, we couldn't find it, but they're working on it. So hopefully we hear back from them soon. So you're getting to research history in the actual place where yeah. looking through those log books, you're not just back here at the Alamo looking through Internet records. You're going to the sites. Yes, yes. And uh, it was great. They Albert Martin was actually inducted into the Rhode Island Hall of Fame a few years ago. And they, in their office space, they had a cabinet that had his uh, flags and medals that the state had bestowed upon him in there. And they were excited to find out that somebody from the Alamo happened to be coming through town and was interested. Love it. So it was great. Another little known connection to the Alamo is in Chicago, the Tribune Tower on Michigan Avenue. It's the former home of the Chicago Tribune newspaper. I actually used to work in that building, so I can tell you it's a bit of a tourist site on its own because fragments of important buildings from around the world are embedded in the outside walls. There's a piece of the World Trade Center. There's a piece of the Great Wall of China. 
and there's a piece of the Alamo. Tell us how that came to be. Well, that's really cool that you got to work there. Another hist- really cool historic place. And, and doing the research on the Tribune building and seeing all those pieces on there, you can't get more connected to the world than that. That's pretty awesome. And I would always walk by that piece of the Alamo and wonder the story. So I'm curious you about had this. A, had a touch and say, you know, I remember Texas. I never touched Alamo. it. Oh, I was afraid to touch it. Don't touch the walls, right? That's what we say inside the buildings. But um, pretty much all the artifacts that are on the Tribune building share a similar pathway on how they got there. So in 1922, a design competition was being held for the building. And the owner of the Tribune and the tower, Colonel Robert McCormick, wanted to add that special feature of these different items from around the world. And so he sent out a request to all the correspondents stationed throughout the world for the Tribune to go ahead and and ask for pieces of historic structures or locations to bring back and put into that bottom portion of the building. And so... In about 1930, the Alamo is approached with this request, and at that time, the DRT is overseeing the site, and that request is endorsed by a DRT member who also happened to be the granddaughter of uh, Vice President during the Republic, Edward Burleson. Her name was Miss Emma Kyle Burleson, and so she stood up in that DRT meeting and said, I think this is a good thing to do, and they all agreed, and so the stone gets sent to Chicago. Where the stone comes from had been up to debate, and there's many much speculation on that. If this is happening in 1930-ish, we think that it's probably from the second story of the Lombaric. In about 1912, 1913, what remnants remained of the second story of the Lombaric is taken down. And so there would have been a surplus of stone to make repairs on the Lombaric, repairs on the church, and other things. So they may have found a, a stone from that pile to send and it, it out. It just Chicago. makes sense. Yeah, it makes sense. They're not going to open up a hole in the wall of the Alamo to send a stone to Chicago, right? No, we're not going to do that. (laughs) Let's cross the ocean now to Western Europe, where several Alamo defenders came from. We found there are various reenactments and reconstructions of the Battle of the Alamo in England and in Germany. Yes, and that's been really fascinating, and we've been fortunate enough to have some of these folks come over and visit the site and talk to us and, and talk to other living historians that are on site and associated with us. So it's pretty interesting. But if you to set the scene, you'd put yourself in a field, in a little community, you see all these canvas tents, you hear the drums, you, you hear the clanking of swords and bayonets, muskets and rifles and the sounds of battle. And you see these uniforms and you're saying, hey, that guy's wearing a coonskin cap and that guy's wearing a, a shako and he's standing under a Mexican flag. And you would think you're in Texas. It has to be. They have a a makeshift Alamo constructed, and it's not. You're right. It's across the Atlantic in, in England. And the first reenactment that this group did was about 2017, and it was massive. About 750 reenactors came to pay their homage to the Alamo, and a group of them sat there and said, man, we had a lot of people coming here, and maybe we should make this uh, an annual deal. And so they did. What they went ahead and developed was the, remember the Alamo Association, United Kingdom, and from then on, in June, they had this reenactment for the Alamo. If we have anyone from the Remember the Alamo Association in the UK listening, we'd love to hear from you in the comments on YouTube or in the ratings on whatever podcast app you're listening to. We'd love to hear your story. So when we cross over the English Channel into Germany, it's about eight miles outside of Berlin, you'll find the pleasant town of Spandau. And while you're walking through this nice little German town, you'll come across this very impressive wooden palisade wall and gate, very much in that Western fortress kind of style. And you'll look up, and it'll say, entrance to town of old Texas. And when you walk in, it's basically set 
like a frontier town in Texas in 1860. And you continue to walk around, and you'll see everything you would typically see, a courthouse, a church. Uh, there's a saloon, of course. Sounds like an old movie. Right, it is, it basically. And then when you go to the far back corner, you see a monument built to Texas and the Alamo. And behind it is almost a one-for-one scale reproduction of the Alamo Church in stone. And the story on how we learned about this involves our uh, senior researcher, Colby Lanham, who lived in Germany for quite a while. And during some work time inside the Alamo Church, he was told that there was a couple from Germany or a group of folks from Germany in there. And so he approached them, offered them an audio tour, and greeted them in German. And they were so excited to have that connection that they began to to tell him the story of how they recreated this Western town and included the Alamo. And uh, it was awesome to go ahead and research that and, and see that connection there. So the Alamo story, again, crossing over. You can find it all over the place. Finally, let's close out our world tour of little-known connections to the Alamo here at the Alamo itself. There's a Japanese poem you can see for yourself on the grounds with a truly touching story behind it. Yeah, so when walking through the Alamo grounds, you go under the big live oak tree, and you might see this stone um, monument there in the corner, and you, while you approach it, you realize it's not, it's not in English, it's not in Latin or Greek or Spanish even, it's in classical Chinese. And while you read the marker that's next to the monument, you realize it's actually donated by a Japanese professor. And this Japanese professor was a professor of historical geography from Waseda University in Japan, Professor Shiga Shigataka. And he arrives in San Antonio to visit the Alamo, and not only does he come for a visit, but he also has this monument in tow. And he writes in the newspaper that he's not even sure if it's going to be accepted or not, but he's hoping that it will be. And just hearing the story, people wonder why. A professor from Japan in 1914 is coming to San Antonio to dedicate this monument. What's his interest in it? And he tells us why. Uh, he looks to the crowd and says, quote, the age of some of the little fellows who are here today, I studied the history of the American nation, of the individual states, and in the latter, there was nothing more interesting than the history of Texas. In the Battle of the Alamo, we find duplicate of the siege of Nagashino. And Nagashino is a siege very similar to that of the Alamo, a very small garrison, heavily outnumbered. It's commanded by a, uh, a young commander in his 20s. Couriers are sent out to ask for aid, and they come back saying that aid is on its way. And in the story of Nagashino, reinforcements do come. The siege is lifted, and the castle is saved. Of course, in our story, that won't be the case. But, but it resonated. It sure did. And he saw that right away and said, "I, if I ever get the chance to go to San Antonio, to go to the Alamo, I want to make sure that I dedicate something to it. And he talks about how in both cultures, the Japanese culture and the United States culture, how there is no difference in sacrifice, that people are willing to give it all for the greater good of their people, and that there's no difference in that, no matter what, in culture, language, and so forth. And he gets to San Antonio, a very big reception for him. Everybody's excited. Uh, the monument is placed, and he's actually given two acorns from the live oak tree and to plant back in Japan. And I haven't been able to find out if he's successful in that endeavor. I hope he was. I'm still looking. Uh, but it's a great story on how the power of the Alamo story transcends throughout throughout the world. And you have to imagine, people did travel in that time, but not as frequently as today. So that was a big deal to have him come here. Yes, and his original destination here in that trip, because he had gone to the U.S. once before abouts, but he was on his way to Washington, D.C., 
And he accepted this invitation to the National Historical Congress in D.C. and said, aha, I'm going to accept this because it's a way for me to get to San Antonio. There you go. Nice travel accommodations. So this poem, you said it's in Chinese, but it's a Japanese poem about a Japanese battle. Correct. And people had questions about that in 1914, too. They were asking, we're kind of confused. And the professor explained why that was, saying that in Japan at the time, it was custom to utilize that classical Chinese language on monuments. And the direct connection he made was saying, look, how you have monuments in Europe and the United States that utilize Latin or Greek. So it's more of a stylistic way that they would do that. And this monument really did stand the test of time with two world wars involving Japan. Correct. Um, So in the Second World War, we see a lot of of anti-Japanese rhetoric going on. And of course, um, it'll be throughout the country. There's a whole section of history here in Texas with um, prisoner camps for both sides of that conflict, uh, German and Japanese um, internment camps for civilians in some capacity as well. And of course, these tensions come to a boiling point and somebody comes onto the Alamo grounds and defaces Uh, the monument. And there is a little bit of um, PR work going on. They're able to say, well, look, the monument's actually in Chinese. And so people kind of stepped back and said, oh, wait, maybe we had it wrong. Um, But also the DRT stepped up and they said, we're not removing this monument. Uh, Despite what's happening right now, this monument was dedicated to a man that had nothing to do with this current conflict And it's a monument to the Alamo defenders and that sacrifice and that spirit of protecting freedom that we were fighting for in the 1940s. And so the monument's still here today. It still bears those witness marks of defacement. Um, And it's a lesson. It's in its own right. It's a teaching point that times do change. Things do change. But that story, that deep connection that people have with what happens here at the Alamo stands the test of time. Now, Thomas, you started your time here at the Alamo as a tour guide. So between being a tour guide and being a researcher, you have met visitors from far off places. Are there any whose stories just really stuck with you? It's hard to keep track of all the the stories that people tell you. And and that's hard to admit because a lot of times people are sharing you these stories that are very um, important to them. And it's good for us, all of us who work here, to take a break sometimes and step back and you look at the Alamo Church, you look at the Lawn Barrack, and you think, wow, what a privilege to be here. And it is refreshing and exciting when people approach you and they're excited to be here because for many, this is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. And I had an, a, an interaction like that with a gentleman from the UK uh, in the back garden area crossing over the Asakia. He walked up to me with his hand out and grasped my hand and began to cry and said wow. that he was so fortunate that his family had pulled the resources they did to come to the United States, which I'm sure is not a cheap thing to do, and then to bring him here, a place that he always wanted to see. And so um, understanding that all of us who work here are stewards of the site, of the memory, uh, of the sacrifice is truly something that that keeps you going on the hard days too. That's what I was going to ask. How does it humble you, motivate you to keep discovering the Alamo story? You know, go search all those acres in Rhode Island, for example, and find new facets to share. There's something about that uh, kind of the sense of duty, I guess, to the men who died here and the people who lived here also and all these different eras and times that the Alamo transcends through. And the interactions with the visitors like that really are what, what keep you going. And I think that 
every time I find something different or I find a connection to another place or another individual, it just expands that story more. And that's the most important thing for people to realize is that the story of the Alamo, and it may be a story bigger than Texas, is not bigger than you because you're a part of it. And this is the people's site. And I hope that with all this work that's going on here, that folks take the time to come visit it. It's not being done for any one person. It's being done for all people. So I hope they come down and see it. Thomas Ledesma, thank you so much for joining us. We hope you'll come back as you learn more in your research and share all your knowledge with us. Well, thank you for having me, Emily, and I look forward to it. We've talked a lot in this episode about where the Alamo Defenders were from. If you'd like to learn more about them and their stories, check out the podcast notes. We'll include a link to the Defenders section of our website where you can learn more about their stories and even take a look at the muster roll that's the best document we have to tell us exactly who was at the Battle of the Alamo. You've been listening to Stories Bigger Than Texas, the Alamo podcast. 